Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And welcome to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up to today's show, anti-diarrhea and too hot for plants. In addition, we'll be joined by Richard Preston, who will discuss the edge of science. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And your world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. That makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? A little um, stomach problem going on. Oh, what's going on there? Oh, uh, I don't know. Something I, I ate, probably. Uh, or something that ate you. <laughs> Bit you back out. Something that's trying to eat me from the inside. <laughs> but it looks like relief may be on the way. Ah, Pepto-Bismol? <laughs> no, in fact, a small compound called peridopyrimidine derivatives. Ah. Shorthand is um, BPIPP. Ah, the pippy. Well, chemists like to make shorthands for everything. And they're so clever with them, just taking the first initials. <laughs> I can never come up with something like that. <laughs> Bacteria like E. coli and anthrax can cause severe diarrhea, and in fact, it's one of the leading killers in third world countries where children actually do die from diarrhea. And the basic mechanism is that these bacteria bind to your intestinal walls, which stimulates them to produce these other compounds called cyclic nucleotides, and these have the unfortunate effect of making your body put a lot of water and salt into your intestines, so that causes dehydration and thus the diarrhea. Mm-hmm. So they've been testing a library of these uh, new peridopyrimidine derivatives, and what they found is that they have the ability to suppress cyclic nucleotides. Probably further tweaks in these type of compounds, they may be able to find a treatment or a, a reasonable remedy for diarrhea or the bacteria that's causing it. Right. Uh, anyways, this was really interesting work carried out by Alex Katz at the University of Texas, and it's actually from our very favorite journal. Wow. I, I should read that journal more often. I have one in my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best place to put it. The proceedings. As a national? Academy. Of Sciences. Penis. Penis. What? I wonder if there's a cure for an intestinal discomfort that the planet is facing. Volcanoes are like heartburn or something. <laughs> I think humans are the disease. <laughs> of course, I'm referring to climate change. It's getting a little bit hot it here. It is indeed. Because <laughs> the mountain plants are moving. The mountain plants are moving? Indeed they are. Are they going north? They're going up anyway. Up. So apparently the mountain plants are much more susceptible to climate change because of the very rapid variations in temperature that can occur right. in the mountain regions. So right. what happens is over time, obviously, plants will move to the correct climate zone in the mountain. Uh-huh. But this is a problem because depending on the characteristics of the plant, they may not migrate as quickly as other plants that are also have to migrate to their best location. And so you might get this spread in which now you have plants competing with other plants that they weren't ecologically designed to huh. compete with. So this is what researchers have recently found in a mountain region in France, work done by Jonathan Lenore of the Paris Institute of Technology in France. And saw oh, the that. PIT. <laughs> That's the pit. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you know, they, there's also Tokyo Institute of Technology. Well, that's a great institution. I mean, it's a palindrome, right? Indeed. <laughs> so what apparently these researchers have found is that certain species, as you might expect, like strictly mountain living species, okay. were migrating much faster than those that, for example, could live in multiple climates, mountain and lowland climates. Oh, okay. So similarly, uh, plants were able to move much quicker than trees, for example, which have a long generation time. Yeah, trees don't walk very fast, you know. <laughs> Not unless you blow the horn of summoning, I think. <laughs> what was that in Lord of the Rings? I don't know. The ants, right? Yes. A number of ecologists are worried to spell some bad news in case these plants don't get along in their new habitats. Oh, man. Can't we just all get along? That's what we're trying to do. Anyway, very fascinating work published in a recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Richard Preston will join us to discuss the edge of science. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, the world of scientific endeavors is vast and far-flung, from killer viruses to the mathematical nature of pi. And reporting on these wide-ranging subjects can certainly be a challenge, but not for our guest today, Mr. Richard Preston. Mr. Preston is the acclaimed writer whose work for The New Yorker and the best-selling book The Hot Zone have made him well-known for his science writing. His recent collection of works, Panic in Level 4, Cannibals, Killer Viruses, and Other Journeys to the Edge of Science, brings together some of his most fascinating pieces into one volume. Mr. Preston, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hi, Charles. Nice to be with you. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program, and certainly a very fascinating uh, collection of pieces that you've written here. I'm curious, actually, how did you uh, choose the stories that are in this collection? Well, I guess you could call them, in one way or another, all personal obsessions. Uh, I think that if anyone is going to be a writer, you really have to have your head examined to be a writer. <laughs> It's hard work, so I like to write about things that really interest me. And in every case, the stories in this book, which are all nonfiction, true essays about science, are about invisible things. They're about the deep depths of the interior universe, the universe that goes to infinity within. You know, I've long been interested in emerging infectious diseases, which I call dark biology. And so there are a couple of pieces in Panic in Level 4 about that, about the search for the unknown host of the Ebola virus, which keeps emerging out of equatorial African rainforests. Ebola lives in some unknown host, a bat, a bird, a butterfly. No one knows. It's quite a mystery to where this virus comes from. And then every now and then it somehow or other gets into the human species. It does what's called a transspecies jump, and then it can move from person to person. And another one of the pieces in the book is the mountains of Pi. And it's about the number pi, that is, the diameter of a circle to its circumference. And I found out about two mathematicians who have since become great friends of mine, David and Gregory Chudnovsky, who live in New York City. Uh, they claim that they're a single mathematician who happens to occupy two human bodies. They work very closely with each other. 
And I heard, found out, that they were building a supercomputer in their apartment out of mail-order parts, and then they were using this machine to calculate the number pi to more than two billion digits. So, you know, pi begins 3.14159, and it goes off to infinity. The digits never repeat. There doesn't seem to be any pattern or order in the digits of pi, and yet there is definitely an order in pi because the number comes from the circle, which is the most orderly and symmetrical object in all of mathematics. So we know that there's an order in pi, but it seems as though the human mind is completely unable, even with our advanced technology, to see or to grasp what may be an incredibly complex pattern in pi. So these guys were using their homemade supercomputer to do this. They're very well-known, internationally respected mathematicians, but they didn't have any money. So they built the thing out of mail-order parts. Uh, the building superintendent didn't know that they were calculating pi in the apartment. They were using incredible amounts of electricity. They were afraid they were going to start a fire. They had 26 fans running to cool the apartment, and they had a meat thermometer stuck into the core of the supercomputer. Gregory told me that when it reached pork, you had to be concerned. <laughs> Uh, and why do they think calculating pi to such infinite number of digits would actually lead to insights into its relevance, its structure? Well, this is the question, of course, that I was fascinated with. And, you know, I spent a lot of time hanging out with them in that apartment as a reporter. I love to do this kind of thing as a writer. I love to get to know not just the science, but the people who do it, who themselves are obsessed. And in this case, they were doing it partly because Gregory, the younger brother, who is in a wheelchair most of the time, he has a debilitating illness, is considered to be one of the world's leading designers of supercomputers. He designed supercomputers in his head the way Mozart wrote music. So they were testing their machine simply by calculating pi. Pi is one of the most difficult problems you can hit a supercomputer with. Pi can crash any supercomputer. And then the other question, which I think was more interesting in a way to me, was that the brothers felt that if they could somehow get a glimpse of a pattern in pi, it would be like getting a glimpse of the face of God. And did they get that glimpse? <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe I don't want to tell you how the piece ends up, but let's just say that if the pattern that they saw in pi was the face of God or a message from God, they're still not sure exactly what God is trying to say. <laughs> maybe good news for all the theologians out there. <laughs> Which one of these do you think was your uh, favorite piece of the lot, if it's possible to choose? Well, certainly the pie piece, because I just loved the subject. It was such a delight to explore mathematics. I, by the way, I got D's in math in high school, Charles, and I had a lot of trepidation working on this piece, worried that I just simply wasn't going to be able to understand the material or communicate it to the general public. But what I found out was that some of the problems in higher mathematics, including in number theory, which is what pi is all about, are actually incredibly simple problems. They can be almost posed by a child, and yet the world's most talented mathematicians have spent thousands of years trying to solve these problems without ever coming up with a solution. So the problems are hard, though they're very easy to ask. And then the other piece that I think that I felt most passionate about was the self-cannibals, which is about probably the most grisly genetic disease that I've ever heard of. The disease is called the Lesch-Nyhan syndrome, and it's caused by a defect in a single letter of the human code, the human genome, the DNA. The human genome has more than 3 billion letters of code in it, 
which would be like 6,000 copies of Moby Dick. Change one letter and one wrong page, and you wind up with a person with this Lesch-Nyhan syndrome. It's named after the two doctors who discovered it in 1962 in a child. The person who has this defect has a behavioral pattern where they are completely compelled against their will to cannibalize their own bodies, to chew off their extremities, to bite off their lips and tongues, and to otherwise attack themselves or injure and mutilate themselves. And it's uncontrollable. They are terrified of their hands. They can't stop it when the demon takes possession of them. It's like possession of a demon. And I've spent time now with people with this disease. I got to know two guys with the disease very well, got to like them and know them a lot. But when the demon of the disease takes over the mind, the expression on their faces would change. They would get a kind of a staring, glittering look in the eye. It was really scary. And then they would proceed to either attack themselves or attack the people they like the most, the people they love. And so as I got to know these men with the disease, they began attacking me, which was a sure sign that they liked me. It took me about eight years to write this one chapter in the book. The problem was that I had to find a way to get inside the mind of a self-cannibal to really find out what it feels like to have this disease. You know, we can write about it. Scientists understand it only at some level, although the disease itself remains a great mystery. But to try to get inside the mind of the self-cannibal and experience and see the world the way they did was a huge challenge. The Lesch-Nyhan disease is thought to be a kind of Rosetta Stone for human behavior, as yet undeciphered. But if we could understand how changing a single letter of the human DNA can result in such a profound change in behavior, behavior which is programmed by the DNA, like programming a computer, then I think we might understand more clearly the sources of many diseases, especially many mental illnesses, and even human behavior at a larger scale. And when you look at history itself, when you see human actions, you see people often doing things that are obviously self-destructive. We all do this to some extent. There's a little bit of Lesh-Nihan in all of us. I mean, we all do these crazy things, and afterwards we say, why did I do that? You know, that was so harmful to me. Um, and it's everything like sitting down in front of the TV and consuming a quart of ice cream. Or we, we do things that, like many episodes in Seinfeld, we try to do things and then unfortunately everything turns out exactly the worst possible way for us. This is in effect a kind of Lesh-Nihan. But in the disease itself, the behavior is just stark and really kind of frightening in a way. And yet there was a humanity in the victims of this disease. They're real human beings. They experience pain and misery the same way we all do. And I also found an incredible human dignity and courage in these people. They loved life. They wanted to be alive. They were able to establish incredibly strong, enduring friendships, which I had with both of these men. One of the men passed away. The other one is still alive. And I continue to keep up with him on a regular basis. After spending so much time, do you feel like you have some understanding into the mind of what's going on with them? Well, yes. I talked to a lot of neurologists and scientists who are studying it. It's kind of an orphan disease. There are so few people who have it. There are probably less than 1,000 people in North America have the Lesch-Nyhan syndrome. Many go undiagnosed. Doctors who have never seen the disease have difficulty recognizing it. But they found out that there's some kind of a problem in the area of the brain called the basal ganglia. 
It's an area about the size of a lemon that's down in the center of the brain, and it's wired into all the other parts of the brain. It's wired up to the higher cortex. It's wired everywhere, and it controls both primitive and sophisticated behavior. The basal ganglia control biting, aggression, attack. They also, this part of the brain is also involved in planning for the future and higher activities, these execution of, of deeds. And the basal ganglia may be constantly sending out signals, impulses to us, giving us impulses to do strange things, which we're able to control. So one doctor was telling me, you know, you can be driving along down the street, and we all get these weird feelings sometimes. Edgar Allan Poe called it the imp of the perverse. You suddenly get this idea that, hey, you know, what would it really be like if I just drove this car into a tree? Or you get up in a high place, and some people feel these strange feelings about how, what would it really be like to just step out this window, just step into space and fly? These are thought to be impulses coming from the basal ganglia that we are able to control. But people with this one defect in their programming, as it were, are completely unable to control the impulses of the basal ganglia. So it's a very deep, troubling, but fascinating disease, and a disease that could someday yield very important insights into all kinds of behavioral and brain diseases. I think the one that you mentioned earlier, of course, probably fascinates a lot of people, and certainly uh, those who've read your book, The Hot Zone, Sources of Ebola. Well, you know, there have been these continuing outbreaks. In fact, there is an outbreak going on right now. And in some of the outbreaks, bats have been implicated. People went into caves. They were thought to have been exposed to bats. Now, in the hot zone, there is a cave in East Africa, Katum Cave, which is on the slopes of an extinct volcano, Mount Elgon, where occasionally people who have gone inside the cave have come down with a strain of Ebola, the Marburg virus. And yet, again and again, teams of scientists have gone into the rainforest and they've sampled large numbers of organisms looking to see if any one of them harbors the Ebola virus. After 1995, there was a huge outbreak in Congo, Zaire, and teams went in and they sampled up to 20,000 different biological samples of organisms that they gathered in the forested savanna areas around the city of Kikwit in Zaire where the outbreak occurred and they came up completely empty-handed. Not a single organism that was gathered from the rainforest had any trace of Ebola in it. And you say, well, how could that be? Well, it turns out that rainforest habitats are incredibly rich with biodiversity. There are just lots and lots of organisms in the rainforest, and so many of them are small. They're like little arthropods and little mites and things that, you know, a scientist might not see and have never even been given names by science. So just to give one example, okay, if bats harbor the Ebola virus, how come we've never gathered a bat that has Ebola or even has a trace of Ebola in it? Well, bat colonies have a parasitic fly that lives on them, a wingless fly called a strebolid fly. This fly, because it doesn't have wings, it moves from bat to bat by crawling across the bats, which live packed together in caves. Now, this wingless fly feeds on bat blood. So one hypothesis is that maybe this wingless fly is the true harboring host of Ebola virus, and the bats are just catching the virus and transmitting it one to the other from the fly. But Strebolid flies have been gathered in caves, and at least to date, 
none of these wingless flies has been found to harbor Ebola. So it remains a deep mystery, but it also remains an example of what is happening in a larger sense to the human species on the great stage of the world's ecosystems. The world's ecosystems are changing rapidly. Humans are moving into rainforest habitats. They're cutting the forest and burning it down. These complex habitats are being fragmented. And many invasive species are moving from place to place around the world. You know, everything from zebra mussels in the Great Lakes to diseases of trees that are killing off many species of trees in North America. And at the root of all this is the human species itself. As we go around the world, as we increase in numbers, we bring many kinds of invasive species with us. And these species invasions, as they change the character of an ecosystem, parasites have a tendency to move quickly from one host to a new host. And that's what's been happening with the human species. We ourselves are being attacked by all kinds of new emerging diseases, which are parasites. They're coming out of, presumably out of disturbed habitats, typically tropical habitats. And like HIV, the human immunodeficiency virus that causes AIDS, these emerging viruses have the potential to go into a pandemic to really spread widely around the world, causing a potentially great deal of harm to the human species. When you think about all these emerging viruses that seem to come almost out of nowhere, like the Ebola virus, they don't come out of nowhere, of course. They come out of some little host, some little animal or organism that lives somewhere out there, and, and the virus then essentially encounters the human species. From the point of view of an emerging virus, the human species is nothing more than an enormous mountain of meat. I'm not a doomsday person, Charles. I don't, you know, we have many, many tools and techniques at our disposal to protect ourselves against these emerging diseases. We have to do a much better job of that through surveillance and better vaccines and all. But, you know, in a larger sense, um, I foresee stormy biological weather ahead. The human species is increasingly becoming urban. I think this year was the year that marks a major turning point for the human species. Now, more than 50% of us live in urban areas. And in particular, people are congregating in huge packed numbers in these so-called tropical super cities. These are giant cities that are occurring in developing nations now. Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh, Lagos, Nigeria. Some of these cities now are getting upwards of 30 million people living in an urban area in one place. That's The state of California has a population of 38 million. So if you take most of the people in California, pack them into one dense city, then take away access to good medical care, take away sanitation, take away good nutrition, and take away access to vaccines, and what you actually have is a ticking biological time bomb. You have a very ripe situation where if an emerging virus, something new coming out of the ecosystems of the Earth that is able to move from person to person rapidly, causing possibly lethal disease, there's going to be a real problem here. Well, we are running slightly out of time, but I'm just curious, maybe you have some final words on all these stories and maybe what you found from investigating these issues. Well, one thing I found is that I, I write about people. In the end, science is fascinating, but the people who do the science are also equally fascinating. And one thing that I've, I've fallen in love with and I'm so deeply impressed with is the indefatigable curiosity of the scientist. Scientists never stop asking questions, and they never stop thinking about 
the way nature really is. They bring us news from the earth. They bring us important news that we all need to know. And in the end, I can only celebrate the work of scientists and be fascinated with the admirable qualities of their passion. Well, Mr. Preston, I do want to thank you very much for joining us and talking about your book, uh, Panic in Level 4. It was great to be with you, Charles. And you're just listening to Richard Preston discussing the edge of science. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. There's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. Something's wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way. God knows it ain't his. It sure ain't no surprise. Yeah, we're living on the play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, panic or stay calm. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would panic or stay calm. Okay, now, now is that a, are we measuring my panicability or the general panicability of everybody? If you would like to relate to your own panic ability or the general panic ability, uh, it's up to you. Okay, all right. <laughs> all right. Fire away. Okay, here we go. Person number one, it's the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke. I'm chilled to my bones. That scares <laughs> me right there. Well, you know, I mean, he's, he's got his hand on the controls, right? But does the pilot really know how to fly the plane? <laughs> I don't know if any pilot knows how to fly that plane. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The plane may be in serious trouble. We don't know if it's under control. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, number two is the pop starlet Britney Spears. Oh, my gosh. I don't know panic, but maybe a sense of dread, eh? Uh, Cultural dread. Yes. Uh, all right. Number three is the president's science advisor, John Marburger. Don't know enough to know, but uh, well, let me put it this way. I don't know enough about his performance, but I would say that in terms of the Bush administration's handling of science, they are desperately in need of adult supervision. <laughs> yeah, so Marburger, he may be, um, you know, a nice guy, but he's clearly not exercising adult supervision here. <laughs> uh, okay, number four is the golfer Tiger Woods. Oh, no panic there, man. Okay. I like him. And finally, number five, it's the President of the United States, George Bush. Well, a little while ago, I would have said head for New Zealand. But the fact of the matter is the countdown is occurring now on his administration. And we only need to wait until January 20th. I'm not panicking yet. All right. Well, uh, Mr. Preston, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game, Grokatron 5000. And, of course, again, talking about your book, which is Panic in Level 4, Cannibals, Killer Viruses, and Other Journeys to the Edge of Science. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. And here is the answer to this week's question of the week. What is gamma radiation? Joining us right now to give us the answer is the Hulkster himself. That's right, brother. It's the Hulkster. Oh, yeah, the 24-inch pythons coming around for you. Wow, just 24 inches? That's because of the gamma radiation, brother, from the steroids. <laughs> okay, brother, that's, that's pretty awesome stuff. I, you, I want some of it. Oh, you better believe it. What you gonna do when the gamma radiation comes for you, brother? It's ultra-high frequencies of radiation, stronger than x-rays, and energy e equals h-nu, you know. Woo, brother. 
but you haven't turned green yet, man. Uh, We're gonna have a smackdown with the climate change, brother. It's gonna be a barbecue. What you gonna do? And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok's, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Link. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. <laughs>